probably injury is the one that shapes you the most. You can spend three years training for an Olympics, but you know, normally you have the cycles, you have the world championships, you have the Europeans in between, but you spend the full year training twice a day for something. And then just one day before your first competition or one day before the world championship, you snap your ankle or you snap your Achilles. I think those kind of setbacks, they do build your resilience and build your toughness and your resolve to achieve what you want to achieve and be able to take a step back sometimes and say, okay, well, look, you know, this is an occupational hazard. That was Deirdre Ryan, Irish Olympian and advocate for a sustainable Irish food. And I'm John Lee. And I'm Martin Nutty. Welcome to another episode of Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. Today's episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Oum Art, where you can find original prints, jewelry, home decor, and custom gifts featuring Oum, the first written form of the Irish language. Visit oumart.com, and that's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com, and listeners can save 20% at oumart.com using coupon code IRISHSTEW. That's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com. Hi, everybody. This is Martin Nutty with the Irish Stew Podcast, and I'm joined by John Lee, and I hear we're going to soar to new heights today. Oh, my God, that's just a terrible Whatever. <laughs> anyway, tell us about our wonderful guest, John, please. Yeah, we're, uh, we're going to back to Ireland for our guest today, but really we're going to talk to one of our most global of Irish Stew citizens, uh, a, a world-class athlete who's competed for Ireland on a global stage, including the Olympics, making her the second Irish Olympian to join us here on Irish Stew. We'll mention the first one later on. She studied and worked in Italy, speaks Italian, trained and worked in Germany, learned German, spent time in her life in Belgium, the UK, and Switzerland. And along the way, she developed an interest in food, nutrition, and sustainability. And that made her a natural fit for Board Bia, the Irish Food Board, where she is helping Irish agriculture and food sector clear the bar to a greener future as the Director of Sustainability and Quality Assurance for Board Bia's Origin Green Initiative. Welcome, Deirdre Ryan. <laughs> Thanks, John. Some great puns there. Delighted to, <laughs> delighted to join you on the show. <laughs> of course, pun is, is uh, as I recall, the lowest form of humor, and we certainly uh, seem to have achieved new lows. <laughs> yeah. um, but Deirdre, welcome to the podcast. We're delighted to have you on. And I'm going to kick this off with a very simple question. Since you work in Barbia, and just to let our audience know, Barbia is the, well, maybe you can explain it in, in better detail than I will, Deirdre, but I see it as the organization that's responsible for promoting Irish food offshore. Uh, that's the primarily goal. But the question I have for you, since you work in the food business and in Ireland, is what is your favorite Irish food? Oh, God, I, I have a few, but if I have to pick one, and it changes every couple of months, but I do like a good steak once a week on a, on, on a Sunday, um, kind of a medium rare steak, and I don't mm. even put anything on it. I don't even bother with the pepper sauce or anything like that, and some nice spuds, roasted spuds. And then some peas with a bit of mint. That's my mm. my latest. You are a total Irish traditionalist by the sound <laughs> of things, as you know. Um, the cow, of course, in Ireland has an extraordinarily long history. I kind of think of you know the cattle raid of, of Cooley, which is or the Toynbow Coolinia, if you want to do in in Gaelic, is you know the Irish epic, the, the equivalent of the Iliad and the Odyssey for listeners that haven't heard that before. And it all revolves around a war over cattle. Uh, so it'll tell you something about how the old cow was that important in Irish culture from 2,000 years ago and continues to be incredibly yeah, important. Huge, huge, huge tradition in Ireland of Irish farming. And they say that, you know, farm only changes generation every, you know, 400 years or something like that. Um, so, yeah, no, it is. And I might give a plug to seafood as well. My other dish that I've been making lately is chopped shallots and garlic, a little bit of white wine and some Irish mussels. You're done in mm -hmm. about five, five minutes and it's ready to go. 
that's my other dish of choice that I've been my go-to these days. Deirdre, it's only it's only breakfast time for us, but you're getting my mouth <laughs> I know. here. <laughs> yeah, lunchtime here. Yeah, so I have food on the mind. But uh, let's do this. Uh, on our stew, we really like kind of origin stories. Um, and the, you, like I, uh, share Dublin origins, except you're still living in Dublin. I live in New York, obviously. So tell me about your Dublin origin story. So, yeah, well, I'm a dub. My parents aren't. So um, my mother is from Duro in Leash. So good farming, dairy farming land in, in Leash. My dad is a Tipperary town man and they actually met in Arklow. And yeah, my dad was teaching in Dublin. So that's where my brother and I were born. So we were born and raised in in, in Rathfarnham, um, went to you know, a local school, Marley Grange, divine word, Marley Grange, a good Catholic uh, primary school nearby. Um, and yeah, I kind of stayed in South Dublin for a good while, um, even went to University College Dublin and, on, on the south side. But I'm currently living on the north side. I'm living in a north strand, so near Fairview Park. So yeah, it's a, I've, I've gone I've gone over to the north side and I, there's no turning back. The beaches are better. You've joined me on, uh, you know, my origin on the dark side now, north side, <laughs> you know. I'd like to talk a little bit about your athletic career. And uh, John mentioned up front, we've already had actually an Irish track and field athlete on the, on the podcast that competed in the Olympic Games as Paddy McGrath, as a hammer thrower and a well-known hammer coach uh, over this side of the world in New York. In terms of Deirdre's accomplishment, I'm going to give her a shout out because she may not do that herself. Uh, Deirdre finished sixth in the World Championships in 2011 in Daegu, Korea. Uh, she holds the Irish record for the high jump at a meter 95. For those that speak old world style, that's a shade under six feet five inches. She holds both the indoor and Irish record, which is standing over 10 years now. And actually, we'll see if anybody comes close any time in the near future. But tell me about how you got involved in the esoteric world of leaping over a bar. <laughs> yeah, and as you speak of records, I, yeah, I, I would love my records to be broken. I, I hope they are sooner rather than later. Um, be great to see some Irish high jumpers reach that level, and there are a few, uh, a few talented girls in in the country at the moment. So fingers crossed. I guess I got into high jumping. I was inspired by distance runners. You know, Ireland has such a long history of distance runners. Um, Sonia Sullivan, I'm sure many of your listeners will know. And I guess, you know, Eamon Coughlin and John Tracy. And it's very, it's part of the, part of the kind of athletic culture here and track and field and field events. Um, so, yeah, I know, I know you're a hammer thrower and a, and a shot putter and everything else. Field events, probably, probably less so. So, um, I would have been interested in cross country running and wanted to join a, a local club, Dundrum South Dublin. Um, but I was, I was actually too young to join at the time. I, I just really wanted to, I was just really loved athletics and track and field and loved watching it and really inspired by the likes of young Sonia's, you know, coming up, uh, through the ranks and, um, eventually joined by the age of, I think, eight or something like that. But, to be honest, I was terrible at distance running. I have no aerobic capacity whatsoever. So mm -hmm. it was torturous. And um, I'd be trailing and last um, a lot of the time on the cross country, cross country days, those freezing cold Irish days when you're, you know, running through, running through fields and ditches and through the mud. Um, so I, I, I kept doing it, but, um, I wouldn't have been the, no, I'd have done okay, but you know, that was for, for effort and not really for talent. Um, but then, uh, Lucy Moore, a coach, um, coach of mine, uh, who was my coach for many years in Dundrum South Dublin, introduced me to high jumping. I'm quite tall. I'm, I'm, I'm six foot tall. So a lot of people think that high jumpers are just tall. It requires a lot more. You get, find a lot of tall people that don't have the coordination, but it seemed to, it seemed to kind of, you know, click with me field events, technical events, and um, more so than jumping events. So yeah, I got into it then probably later than, than most in, um, in other European countries. High jump is quite, you know, you have some fantastic, you know, Shanti Howard or Lowy in the States and you, you had Amy Acuff. So there's, there, there's been quite a few in recent years, Americans, but you know, it's traditionally Eastern European, uh, where you find very talented high jumpers. Um, and they would start a lot younger. So I guess I was about 14, 15 when I got into it and then kind of 
kicked off from there for many years then. Uh, Deirdre, I've got a basic question about the high jump. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when high jumpers went over the bar belly first, which we would have called, I think we called it the Western roll. It might have actually been called a straddle technique. Uh, 1968 uh, Olympics in Mexico, one of the biggest stories was Dick Fosbury, the Fosbury flop, where he would go over the the board, over the bar backwards, as you do today. As many times as I watch that, as many times as I see someone do that in slow motion, I can't quite figure out what's going on. Could you take us through it? Sure, sure. Yeah. And the, you know, the other approaches were like the scissors jump where you kind of, you know, if you can kind of picture scissoring, jumping up straight and scissoring your legs over, over something, it's hard to kind of picture for people listening and not watching, but, um, that's kind of one of the original ways. Um, and then there was this kind of, I think it was the roll where you kind of roll over, over it forward. But the Fos- the Fosbury flop and the flop is, is, I mean, it gives you huge more potential to, to gain height. Um, you know, because you can you can lift your center of gravity that bit higher if you have the flexibility to go over backwards. So essentially, what you try and do when you're when you're jumping is you you kind of run on if you can picture a, a J shape almost as you're running up to the bar, and the angle and the curve kind of gives you the ability to kind of propel yourself kind of forward over the bar, but gain, gain height. So the curve, running the curve, is, is is really important, and it's actually it can be quite difficult on your on your ankles as you can imagine the twisting of your knees and your ankles and take off so you're kind of taking off at that at that angle so what you're really trying to do is reach up as high as you can with your arms and your your you drive your 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 knee forward and if you can kind of picture then pushing your hips over your knee you can kind of go into this arching position that gives you the ability to kind of gain huge huge more height um as well o- over the bar so yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's hard to kind of you know when you do it the first time, <laughs> it it just like anything it takes what what do they say I don't know ten thousand hours if not more of practice to perfect mm. something um really well so um you know you, you you see kids it's it's interesting watching kids as they kind of get there you know and progress the more they 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 develop the technique um, but yeah it's 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 kind of all physics really you know it's just power weight ratio and power over curve and you know it's um. It's, it's biomechanics and physics, really. That kind of, yeah. Fosbury yeah. was a civil engineer by training, although I think he sort of applied the the engineering, the mathematics after the fact. I think he sort of found <laughs> Yeah, way. he just felt I just, it. As I looked into this, have you ever come across a, a Canadian high jumper at that time named Debbie Brill? No, I didn't. There was another Canadian high jumper at the time, but I just think that name rings a bell. Maybe she was just a bit before my time. Uh, well, she would have been a contemporary of Fosbury's, a little bit younger. Oh, right, and apparently yeah. she developed the technique independently. Called, it was called yes. the grill bend. I've heard of her. Sorry, I have. That's what I've yeah, heard of her yeah. from. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, yeah, she was developing at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's one of those things you often see even in like kind of motivational speeches around, you know, rethinking things and things being done the same way for so long and then how they how they really just change completely by virtue of one person making some sort of discovery, which is uh, interesting in the sporting world. I know Ireland doesn't have a huge tradition in high jumping. And as I understand it from your career, in order to kind of progress at a certain point in time, you had to leave Ireland to take it to the next level. And I understand you fetched up in Germany. Can you take us through that, uh, exactly how that developed? And how did that kind of, you know, change your view of the sport? And and also, once you leave uh, Ireland, you tend to look at the country a little bit differently. Yeah, that's true. I think actually, yeah, and you see that in a lot of uh, cultures and countries, you know, sometimes when people go abroad, they almost become more traditional in many ways and they really hold on to their roots and things like that. So I, I often find that with a, with a lot of people that, that go abroad probably wasn't my case for the first few years, but you definitely do look back and look at things differently and, you know, miss the good bits and wish that the bad bits could improve better. Um, but going back to your first question around leaving, I had come to a point where I felt that I couldn't improve much further in Ireland. Um, and, you know, that would have been something that I would have talked to discuss with, with my coach at the time, who I guess I was her first 
maybe you know her first high 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 performance athlete um and you know she we, we still have a great relationship now Lucy Moore but you know we both kind of felt and maybe me more so than her initially which is always a difficult decision to make to leave a leave a long-term coach and almost like a, a, big, a big breakup um but that I, I needed more kind of attention, more technical expertise. Um, the facilities in the country at the time weren't what they are what they are now. Um, so even place to jump, I know in University College Dublin, there was a mat that I used to train on and it was burnt down. Um, and they bought a new one and that one was burnt. And, you know, the, so like not by one to trying in, in, in that particular instance, but um, just, you know, that's t- painting a terrible picture of Ireland. That was a very unusual incident. But um, anyway, so, you know, I didn't have a place to jump. So I was jumping, compete, traveling across the city to kind of get a facility to jump in. And the facility that was there was very narrow. I couldn't do my full run up and everything like that. So it was just a little bit of a challenge. And I, I also maybe felt that I wanted some new inspiration and motivation. So I had been trying for a number of years to find a coaching system that would, um, you know, adopt me <laughs> for want of a better word. And I think, you know, when you get to that level, I was already competing at a particular, like, uh, like a high ish level, you know, so it wasn't, um, and then there's kind of national interest at heart. Now, you know, other countries and other coaches or the national teams might not want to take on a competing nations team or, you know, competitors. So it can be difficult to find a group. So I, I did kind of, you know, print out the top 50 list and start calling federations and coaches and saying, you know, does anyone need a training partner? And I had been looking around for a while. Um, I had trained with a Belgian coach for a while, but that didn't work out. They had very different kind of training methods and um, it just, it just, it just didn't work for me. Um, and then I found a coach in Germany. I, I was trying to qualify for a world championship. So I, kind of packed asked my boss for a few day, a few weeks annual leave and I was just you know frantically running around Europe trying to get competitions to make this qualification and I ended up in a place called Bayer Leverkusen in Germany you probably know it from um you know the football team and they Bayer pharmaceutical facility they actually fund a lot of the athletes in, in that in that region um so I was doing a competition there and I just saw these incredible facilities and just it's like a playground for athletes you know all these exercise things you could you know utilize the the gym facilities the medical facilities and everything else so um yeah I kind of took it upon myself to befriend one of the coaches there and you know try to see if he would you know take me on as an athlete there was a girl there at the time who was training and she needed a training partner so I yeah they they eventually agreed uh, to let me compete for Bayer Leverkusen as well as for Ireland and uh you know, I could do regional competitions for them. Okay. I couldn't do nationals for Germany, obviously, but, um, so I was allowed to train there. Yeah. And I had a, a, a fabulous coach called Gert Osenberg. He would have coached many of the greats. He was retired really at the time, but he was coaching me and a triple jumper from Grenada who had a similar experience was on his way to Latvia from America and ended up in Leverkusen and never left. And he's actually still there. So, <laughs> so Gert was obviously taking in a few strays at the time and uh, yeah we competed there with a few of the other German athletes and uh, yeah we had a fabulous experience it was good to um, you know it was good to be forced to learn another language as well like that's something that I never would have done otherwise German I, 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 I prefer like Latin languages but um, it has helped me since then My I got a really great job in um, the retailer Lidl as their head of sustainability years later. And one of the prerequisites was that you spoke German. So it did help. And, you know, it's always good for traveling. And I've made some fabulous friends there. And I think just living abroad, you, it just opens your mind in many ways that you don't even realize when you're, when you are abroad. Um, And then even when you come back, you see different ways. So I just think, yeah, traveling and having to be abroad didn't seem like a burden on me that I had to leave Ireland to jump better or anything like that. It was, it was a, really exciting time and exciting experience and you know my coach only really spoke German so we didn't have much choice a bit like being in the Gaeltucht in Ireland for your listeners who don't know what that is when you when you're in school in Ireland and you have to uh you know <laughs> you have to learn Irish for your exams you go off to the Gaeltucht for three weeks and speak only Irish and it's total immersion and uh you you just learn it so it was a similar experience in German where I just had to learn it and you know you now it's uh yeah I've probably forgotten a lot of it but yeah, it's good good to have yeah if you don't use it you lose it kind of thing yeah, you know yeah but it comes back I think 
would practice. And just one other thought on the world of high jumping. As I understand it, and pretty much, you know, any high jump competition I watch, ultimately, it ends up in failure, even for the winner, (laughs) which is kind of an oddity, you know, when you compare it to some of the other events, because, you know, you keep jumping and jumping and jumping until you can go as high as possible. And then eventually, you know, you can't jump any higher and the bar comes down. How does that experience shape you as a person and now as a business person because you're dealing constantly with failure in a way right do you ever think about that as as being kind of like a very odd sporting experience yeah it is actually interesting isn't it high jump and, and pole vault are really the only two events where you you always end on failure um, and I think even, you know, apart from the looking at the failure bit, but also when you're, you know, when you're about to jump a bar, you know that you've never jumped that high before. So, you know, you're about to do something that you've never done before and you've never achieved before. Whereas in something like long jump or sprint, you know, you just run as fast as you can jump and hope that it, you did better than before. So that's why it's such a it's such a mental event um and does require that kind of mental toughness and resilience i think compared to the other events in many in many ways um but i think even even you know beyond that just the the challenges of sport and how they shape you i think probably injury is the one that shapes you the most um you know so you know you spend you can spend you can spend you know three years training for an Olympics, but, you know, normally you have the cycles, you have the world championships in between, you have the Europeans in between, but you spend the full year training twice a day for something. And then, you know, just one day before your first competition or one day before the world championship, you know, you snap your ankle or you snap your Achilles and you, you know, I think, you know, that those, those kind of setbacks do, um, they do kind of build, they do build your resilience and build your toughness and, and your, 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 you know, your resolve to achieve what you want to achieve and be able to kind of take a step back sometimes and say, okay, well, look, you know, this is an occupational hazard. This is what happens in sport and onwards and upwards. And you, you become very solutions oriented. As soon as you get injured, you kind of, you know, you might get upset for a day or two, but then, you know, your mind has to shift into mode of how do I get better? What do I eat? What do I do? What can I do when I'm injured? You know, what doctors can I see? You know, that kind of solutions focus and how can I make this injury better for something, you know, to have been worthwhile, you know, and do something different and do something, you know, take a step back and change your system. So, you know, I think that all those kind of areas and things are, you know, I think sport shapes you in so many ways that, you know, you, I don't think, I I don't think I'd be the person at all. I think I'd be a totally different person if it wasn't for sport. I might be a better person. I might be a more fun person. I might be, I might be many different things. I don't know, but, um, maybe I wouldn't be as hard on myself or maybe I wouldn't be, you know, as dogged or something, but there's definitely, it definitely shapes who you are in a huge way as would, you know, loads of other things in life that happen to, that happen to people. I mean, it's, I often think about it when you definitely do build resilience. It's not like you, when you get injured, you lose something or someone, you know, so it's not like this huge traumatic life thing that grief can be, but it builds kind of day on day resilience in a way, you know, that kind of process oriented day on day type of, okay, small setback, let's keep going kind of thing that that does kind of translate itself to work, to kind of those work environments quite well, you know, they're quite similar. It's not like we're all changing stuff, but yeah, it's it's it's, it's a mindset that does fit, I, th- I think, quite well with the work environment that you, you kind of, you take things that, you know, maybe other people might take really seriously or really get really upset about and, you know, get frustrated with and not that I don't get frustrated but you you kind of move on and kind of keep going and get solutions solutions oriented as well um there's so many other I suppose aspects to sport though that translate to life and you know team building and your network and always having to motivate yourself and motivate others so yeah sport is just you know I'm really passionate about the my, my my work and my you know that I do now but I think I think, you know, if I were to ever have kids or, you know, any of my friends that have kids, I'm, I'm just always, always trying to get them to have their kids involved in sport, you know, I think, or something, or just have an interest, you know, as they grow up, be it music or, you know, just to strive to, to be, to achieve something and to be, 
dedicated to something and learn something about themselves as they go through that kind of process of doing well, not doing well, you know, how to figuring out how to do well, you know. Before we get into your your business uh, career that that culminates now with uh, Board Bia, one one more stop on your athletic trail. You were talking just recently about injuries and ankles. I know you had a, an ankle injury in the uh, in the run up to the Olympic Games in London, but what was that like? Just from a kind of an emotional feeling, D- did you walk in with the team uh, at the opening ceremonies? Uh, what was it like to be in the Olympics? Yeah, it was um, it was definitely a surreal um, experience. I think, you know, you think when you're doing world championships and Europeans that they're kind of the same, like the world championships is essentially the same thing. You're competing with the best in the world. But I think because the Olympics has such a, a, a buzz about it, such a hype about it, and your family and your friends really understand it more so than they do world championships, it does add an extra, you know, and the multi-sport aspect to it and the village. And, you know, so it's, it's just a really exhilarating, it's exciting buzz of an experience. And um, that, you know, I, I, you know, it's just the big show on earth, you know, for that day, you know, but, um, I, at the same time, when you're, when you're like harboring an injury, it can be a little bit, it can be stressful as well. Like I didn't go to the opening ceremony. I went to the closing. I, I was back at the time. I had a bit of ankle as well, but I had a bulging, bulging kind of disc in my back. Um, and quite a, yeah, quite a few kind of ankle injuries. My best year was probably 2011 and 2012. The body just started to break down quite a bit, but it's, it's, it's a weird, I think athletes just sometimes have a very strange, um, mentality you know you know you're injured you know you're quite injured and you're quite stressed but at the same time you fully believe that you can go out there and despite all that you know you know make the final and who knows this great story where you make the 11 so you've kind of got it's it's this almost like contradiction within your own brain of like you know I'm stressed I know I'm stressed and I'm injured but at the same time I still believe that this is possible and it's going to happen and then you're really disappointed even though it was really obviously not going to be the success that you thought it would be so it's um, it's yeah you're almost a contradiction in yourself at times but um so yeah I I, I guess I, I one of the experiences I do remember is um <clears throat> meeting a friend of mine after I competed and I was, I was quite upset. I, you know, it hadn't worked out as the fairy tale story coming back from injury, everything else, you know? Um, and she was a pole vaulter from Iceland who was also trained in Leverkusen and she was a mentor with to the Icelandic team. And she, she was just like, dear to her, like 99.9% of people in this village are disappointed. You know, you, like you, you need to take an hour and you need to get over it. You need to get down to the track. You need to cheer your team on. You need to go see Katie Taylor win her medal. You know, you need to go, you know, go soak it all up because you'll regret it if you don't. And, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I did and just kind of almost like got over yourself and kind of be disappointed in two weeks time and figure out the solutions. But for now, just try and try and, you know, enjoy this experience. Like at the time, of course, I thought I was going to go to Rio. I, I never really recovered. Um, you know, I tried the year after, but, you know, I think 2011 was really my year. 2012 was just the start of the end, but you don't think it is at the time. So you do think you'll have Rio and you'll make a comeback, but, um, yeah, I did, I did did really, I really, I did really enjoy it that after and just tried to take in the experience. So yeah, it is, it's very grateful to have had that opportunity to have had that career, to have had the people that supported me, my parents, my coaches, my my friends and family and, you know, and the, you know, sponsors and, and sports council and everything, you know, that sponsored and, 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 and funded, you know, some elements of it as well. So, you know, I was very grateful to have that. Well, it sounded like, you know, your, the origins of your, your move towards origin green came from things I've read came during your athletic career when you were in Germany and you started to get, you picked up on the nutritional focus of the German athletes mm-hmm what this food really is, where it comes from. And if I understand that correctly, that, that was the seed for your, your path uh, towards sustainability. Yeah, indeed. I think, yeah, it was just that. And, and, and a lot of athletes just take a really keen and have to take a really keen focus on, on, on their diet um, and, and the provenance of food, how it's grown. And I think just the importance of food and God, now more than ever, when we see what's happened in Ukraine and Russia and, you know, food prices and everything, you know, and how, 
how how we were all so affected by you know food systems um you know and and the you know, well the atrocities that have that have gone on there and how we're so affected by you know climate change and our food system and how fragile and important it is so yeah i think i think just you know, I, that it just, yeah, as you said, it was the seed of just nutrition and how important it is just to look after, to look after our body and eat good food and, and understand, you know, it's the fuel you put in an engine and, you know, you're trying to drive a race car when you're an athlete. So, um, I also think that at the time, um, Germany was probably more, you know, they, they were more interested in, um, you know, the kind of sustainability was more to the forefront of, of the German consumer than the Irish consumer. So that interested me a lot. Um, and I met actually, I met colleagues now who were, um, who I work with now who were in the German office of the Irish food board over there. And I just thought it was amazing that like these people are out there, you know, putting their Irish jersey on and, you know, talking about the great provenance and great food we have in Ireland and, and, there they are in the German office. And, you know, so I, I always had kind of board BIA and, you know, that, that mission of what they do at the back of my mind. Um, so when I retired, you know, I, I saw this course that they were offering around, um, you know, going back to study again. Um, I'd done business studies and languages, international business. So similar, you know, I'd done a lot of related stuff that we do now in terms of marketing comms and business development and stuff. But um, my interest is really in sustainability then. So I went back to do a master's in sustainability um, in Smurf at Business School, again, in, which is UCD. Um, but it's funded by the Irish Food Board, who I work for now. Um, so you do a two-year program whereby you do your master's, but you also go on placements with different companies. So you spend, you know, I spent six months, eight months actually in Nestle in Switzerland and then you spend, you know, I spent six months back in Dusseldorf in Germany working for Metro Group. And then I worked with Subway. So it was it was exciting because I was learning new stuff. I was traveling. I was always, you know, on the move, which I was used to from being an athlete. Um, and it was kind of, yeah, it was just a new, a new, a new, new beginning. So that's kind of where, yeah, where it all, where it all started, that two year program, which was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a really game changer, I think, for me and kind of eased me back into the world. I think if I'd gone from, I, I used to always work when I was competing, but I was working maybe, you know, flexibly remotely, a bit like we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I could work a couple of days a week, maybe four days, depending on my schedule for athletics. So working very flexibly like was, wasn't really my priority for honest, you know, I was, my priority was sport, but when I retired then it was kind of like, like what am I going to do now? So that was a, that was a nice transition piece. And I wasn't sitting, you know, in an office, I was up, I was on the go, I was doing different things. I was studying as well as working. So had that variety that I was, that I was looking for. So it probably wasn't until two years later that I kind of, you know, only dawned on me, okay, I've actually retired now and there's no going back. I just busied myself with something else. So talk to me a bit about your current position and sustainability. You know, we, we toss these words around sustainability. Why should anybody give a darn about sustainability and how does that relate to food? Yeah, so food sustainability, I mean, food is just, as we were speaking about earlier, it's hugely important to every single person on the planet. But it's also, you know, it can be a huge contributor to to greenhouse gas emissions and to climate change. But we all need food. So it can contribute up to, you know, I mean, even in Ireland, about 37 percent of emissions come from agriculture because we're an agricultural producing nation. So the more sustainably we produce it, which we, we do here in Ireland comparatively, the better. Um, and so I think from a from a, you know, even a consumer or customer perspective, you know, being conscious of what we eat, how we eat, um, is, is, is essential. The program we run here is called the Origin Green program. So it was established kind of based on our, we had quality assurance programs in place about 20 years ago. Um, and we developed those quality assurance systems into sustainability programs. Um, so on farm level, we, we work with 55,000 farmers, um, who we audit every 18 months on their quality assurance, but also their environmental performance on various different areas. We carbon footprint all the farms, give them feedback reports, work with, you know, advisory as well in, in, in partner agencies and um, to support, you know, the improvement of, of, of farm practice so that we can, 
assure customers globally that when they buy from Ireland, it's produced in a sustainable fashion in, 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 from farmers who are making improvements all the time. The company side, so it's a farm to fork program. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's across all sectors from farm to fork, from even retail to manufacturing. On the manufacturing side, we have a lot of, a lot of big companies who export, mainly export. We export about 90% of what we produce in Ireland. So they develop sustainability plans. So five year sustainability plans, again, looking at social sustainability, environmental sustainability. Um, and we audit them then every year. So they develop a five year plan. Then every year they come in for, they give us all their data and we do an audit to make sure they're progressing. Um, and then similarly with the retailers here in Ireland, we do the same thing. They develop sustainability programs and, and we audit them so we can assure customers, you know, globally. But I think there's a, you know, there's a, there's, there's a growing interest, I think, from global customers and consumers around sustainability. Different aspects are more important in different markets. So the American consumer is very different to the Swedish consumer. But by and large, there's, 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 there's growing interest in, in, from a consumer perspective. But from a, from a legislative perspective, there's, there's massive targets that we all need to reach in Europe. We have the European Green Deal. Um, and actually more, well, more specific to the agricultural sector, we have the farm to fork strategy. So that's really charting the recovery from recession, from COVID and from, from COVID-19 and, and, and just the economic resilience into the future on sustainability, so green recovery and so on. So the farm to fork strategy from EU then will be taken up by the various member states. But we also have targets in place that we need to meet around greenhouse grass emissions and biodiversity. So, you know, future proofing from a from a from a nature perspective as well. So yeah, it's a, it's 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 a huge challenge, you know, from a, from an environmental perspective. But you know, it is we are at an advantage here in Ireland, I suppose, and have made a good start already. Um, but yeah, I don't know. In 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 uh, in, in New York, how's the how's the consumer? You know, uh, it, I think you're ahead of us, and, and certainly in the, particularly in the agricultural sector, applying some standards across agriculture, we're way, way, way far from that here. And one thing I, I, I mentioned to you, Deirdre, I had done a bit of work for BoardBee a, a few years ago on a PR project, a brief uh, public relations project they had here, and one of the one of the elements was the uh, grass fed standard, and this is. Uh, you know, what is it that makes the cattle, the dairy or the beef grass fed? And it, it sort of underlines that there's a lot of terminology that's just sort of slapped on the things that, that they don't mean anything like hypoallergenic. What does that mean? So I think what uh, really came across for me in that particular program and other things I learned about Origin Green is this is very, it's a very rigorous program. There's a lot of data collection. There's a lot of data analysis. And my understanding was kind of independent third party inspection and judges of, of the, the progress of these farms and, uh, letting them know where they fall short and what they have to improve. So it's not just a, a nice greenwashing label you're putting on things. There's a, there's some real rigorous data science behind it. Absolutely. I think that's the, yeah. And it's still actually the only national sustainability program that goes from farm to fork. So across all the sectors that's independently verified. So it was set up about 10 years ago. So we're still up there um, and making making improvements all the time. But the independent verification piece is really important, you know, that we say what we do, we do what we say, you know, we stand over everything and, you know, everything's independently audited and the, the data collection piece is there. And, and, you know, it can it can be a challenge, you know, particularly, you know, our horticulture scheme, you, you know, the auditors could be there for seven, eight hours, they could be there for two days, sometimes when, 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 when needed. So there's a lot of effort that goes into, you know, goes into the program, as you say, from the, both the dairy and, and, and the beef perspective um we have great advantages from gra from the it's grass-fed production system you know on average 240 days a year 
cows are grazing in the country um, so there's less feed being utilized um, you know particularly there's a lot of issues around feed and uh, and deforestation and the, the carbon footprint attached to them so they will be supplemented but by and large it's grass-based um, you know grass-based systems um, so that is that that does make it a more extensive it's not intensive agriculture it's very extensive agriculture there's you know lower lower stocking rates you know so you know, the family, smaller family, family farms might have increased slightly in, in, in the last few years, but, you know, they're, they're, they're small farming systems, traditional farming systems. But having said that, making, making huge strides and the technologies that are now available as well. So yeah, there's a lot to do, you know, when you look at the, you know, the climate agenda. Um, but we are certainly, yeah, at an advantage, as you said. You know, it's funny, um, when, um, you mentioned, uh, and I read that, you know, there's something like 55,000 farms uh, that are registered and involved in the Origin Green program, which kind of got me thinking, well, how many farms are there actually in Ireland? Uh, which I think is in the range of about 135,000, which kind of blew me away because uh, Ireland is not a huge country. It's only got maybe 6 million people total if you look at the whole island of Ireland. And then uh, my background, my family background, actually, uh, we were in the horticulture business, specifically uh, nursery ornamental plants. And I grew up in an era, my father actually worked for what is now Tagusk, which was on Forest Taluntas back then. And in that era, when he was operating in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of talk about the Green Revolution meaning a lot of, uh, you know, better plant selection, but also accompanied by more fertilizer, more insecticide, more herbicide. And it strikes me right now, not just in Ireland, but certainly in Ireland, that there is this huge transition going underway from this kind of intensive farming towards a more organic approach, I think, might be the best way of describing it. Um, and I wonder, is that your read is, is this a new revolution? So people talk about the green revolution, but now it seems to be, we have to go to a sustainability revolution, uh, because we don't, we have enormous problems barreling down the pike on us, but there must be huge tension. You know, anytime there's a big transition like that. There's a huge tension, especially for producers. Yeah. And to what degree do you guys kind of step in and get involved and kind of smooth the way? Yeah, and, and just as you mentioned, Chagas, we we work really closely with Chagas. They're the um the, the the in charge of the agricultural research and knowledge transfer. So, you know, any research they do, how they transfer that knowledge to farmers as well. So, yeah, they're they're a, par- a partner agency of ours and the Department of of, of Agriculture. So. We yeah, and we'll be working with them more more intensively now as well. But yeah, there's there is you know there is I, th- I think farmers are feeling like that they're feeling like put upon that you know all of a sudden agriculture and you know meat and dairy um, and ruminants generally are 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 being criticised for for their greenhouse gas emissions when you know during covid or previous years it was like you know all about food and getting food security and getting food to people and 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 everything else and yeah i think i think there's a sense now that you know in the last maybe 10 years a realization of of the of emissions that can come from food you know people always knew that there was emissions coming from manufacturing coming from driving cars coming from planes coming from you know just wearing clothes and manufacturing of textiles so i think yeah now now that now that there's talk a lot of talk around agriculture and and, and emissions it's quite a change and it's a difficult time i think for many farmers um so yeah it's important i think that Borbia and that other organizations and people understand yes the importance of sustainability and good food but i guess the wider contribution of the farming sector so it is definitely that time of tension you do feel that and there is also that feeling of opportunity that comes with sustainability and you know particularly I think in Ireland when we know that you know sustainable we we, we produce sustainable food and the world needs more sustainable food so you know there's there's and, and I think you know when we go abroad particularly we compare ourselves to other countries 
you know, you almost, you know, we need to bring that message back home and say, but look, you know, everyone, <laughs> everyone's like wants what we have here. But um, there is the realization that there has to be a lot of change over the next coming years. We have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions as per the targets set out by the by by the government here and and the EU, um, by by twenty five percent by twenty thirty. So that's gonna that's gonna change the way we farm and that's gonna change how we you know how we manufacture food and drink and it's gonna change how people you know how people you know so that's the, that's the that's the target for agriculture but we need to be climate neutral by 2050 uh, and we have to have our carbon have our carbon emissions so 51 percent by 2030 so that's going to change how we live you know how everyone lives their life um and we all probably we all just need to take responsibility for that as well so yeah, this change definitely the green revolution, as you say, is is, is well and truly arrived. Um, but you know, I think, I think they're you know, farmers are up for the challenge, but need more supports. You know, they do need to know exactly what it is they're being asked to do. Um, there needs to be more incentives for farmers. I think consumers need to pay more for food. Realize that we do need to pay more for food. What's the true cost of food? Um, and governments need to, you know, the government needs to, 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 to incentivize sustainability as well through the various mechanisms like they've climate, um, you know, caps and eco schemes and things like that that are rolling out. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complex challenge and multifaceted solutions are needed. Well, Deirdre, you know, we're talking about the, the board be a, Origin Green and the food industry of uh, Ireland, you know, mostly in terms of sustainability. There's another aspect of this. It tastes great. Uh, <laughs> the food in Ireland is great, you know, and yeah. it, it wasn't the previous reputation of Ireland. But I'd like to just relate a story. I think I've told it on Irish Stew before. But my wife is from Italy, not far from Milan. She taught me that you did salto in alto. <laughs> is that the high jump yeah, in Italian? <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> okay. So, uh, she, you know, she's from Northern Italy. She grew up with all the great food, you know, mother made the pasta, you know, the, someone showed up with the pheasant they had gotten, you know. So it was all very fresh, very natural. And when, when we took our first trip to Ireland, she was a little, you know, a little on the fence about, okay, I guess fish and chips for the next 10 days. She was so impressed by the food. I mean, it yeah. was every place we went. It wasn't elaborate. It wasn't, you know, uh, f f uh, Michelin French dining. It was all good. It was well prepared and fresh. Yeah, wonderful produce we have. Yeah, that's so and true. So that that's that makes what you're doing with Origin Green uh, really a part of the the tourism mix of Ireland. It's it's drawing people to Ireland in a new and different way. Yeah, it is, and it's all it's all about that kind of natural natural food, you know, not over engineered, just natural produce, you know, well produced, good stewards of the land, and and you know, happy happy animals, you know, <laughs> when you think about it, when you put it down to its simplest right. form, you know, I think having that grass based system is conducive to you know to 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 that animal welfare piece as well, so. Yeah, certainly. Um, certainly, there's so many facets to it, but we we absolutely, yeah, we. It's a privilege to be, you know, part of an organisation whose job is to, you know, go and market that great produce that we have. And yeah, it's uh, it's it's good to hear that the Italians are are impressed too. <laughs> and uh, you know, I know Kerry Gold has been a, a calling card over here, and it's it's yeah, I it's think it's become success. just about the biggest yeah. seller, and it's more expensive, and people. That was one of the uh, Dan Barber when he, uh, I, I was helping organize this uh, program with uh, Tara McCarthy, at your, your former CEO, and, and Dan Barber, a famous sustainability-oriented chef here. And he, you know, just went on about Irish butter, how good it was, how it just, you know, was like un any, unlike any other butter. Yeah, 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 indeed, indeed. And even living, I think the second biggest market for Irish butter is Germany. And yeah, every time, you know, every time I went to uh, anyone who I say I'm from Ireland, they just say Kerrygold and Irish butter. Whereas, you know, when you're in, when you're in Italy, it's the drinks industry, which is a, another huge success, the whiskey and the, and the Guinness that they, that they remember. But uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just thinking about, you use the word engineering or over-engineering food. Uh, there is another emerging trend mm. in the world. We could call it many different things, but 
I've been reading a little bit about the notion of precision fermentation, mm. where people are now trying to generate protein-based foods. Think of Beyond Meat or something like that, uh, well-known emerging brand in the United States, which is kind of like a meat based on vegetarian inputs. This particular new industry uh, seems like it's going to grow. Uh, and a lot of people are positioning these manufactured foods as being a solution to sustainability problems because you don't have, let's say, the methane emissions that you have from a large you know, cattle herd, etc. And a lot of people make the case that we can generate protein a lot cheaper by kind of taking a chemistry-based approach to this. What are the consequences for Ireland? Yeah. <laughs> it's a big question. And yeah, we, we're actually yeah, we're actually doing Martin a piece, big piece of research at the moment on 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 plant based and seeing where it's going and trying to understand what those you know mega trends are, just so that our companies and our industry is prepared for yeah prepared for what's what's what because ultimately we respond to consumers and customers and what they what they want and need and um, you know and and if there's if you know there. Obviously, we, we we focus on 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 what we do well, and we have huge comparative advantage in terms of our of our systems here. But we certainly want to keep ahead of any any of those trends. We we haven't like while while the while those markets have growing are growing, we haven't seen a decrease you know in the consumption of the areas that you know that that we're, we're, we're we are focused on. So, but it'll be interesting to see what that this new piece of research um, showcases as well, and you know. There's so many of the different alternatives that I think the key thing is just to, you know, from a consumer perspective, just to be mindful of, 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 of the nutrients. And sometimes you see these plant-based proteins, but just have a million other ingredients, you know, going back to my putting my athletic hat on, I used to always just think simple, just if it's simple, simple ingredients, few, fewer, you know, so you don't want... But but um, you know there are there are there are some other there are some brilliant products out there. A lot of our companies we ha we do have a lot of uh, plant based companies as well. Um, but we would even in terms of the health and nutrition, the focus on health and nutrition and you know the the, the cleanness of those ingredients is going to be really important as well. That there's there's not loads of additives, there's not loads of sugars, salts, hidden things and things like that. So, you know, it's certainly we're 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 food industry for for all 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 foods and keep an eye on all those trends, but. There's no major alarm bells, I would say, you know, in terms of dairy, you know, price dairy or 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 meat or anything like that um, disappearing. But you know, I'm sure there will be trends where people, you know, particularly in certain in certain countries, that things become more of a delicacy, you know, and premiumized, and that's where we would be positioning ourselves. Is like if you're only eating meat that little bit less, then eat good quality, you know, grass fed Irish beef and. I don't eat meat every day either, you know, or, or, or dairy, you know, it's, it's, if you follow the nutritional guidelines, it's portions, whatever, I don't, I don't know what it is, I don't tan, but you know, a, a palm of, a palm of meat three, four times a week. Um, and, and those areas. So I think there's, there's room, there's room for us all, particularly given, <laughs> given the global, global population growth and the way it is, but it's certainly the premium market that we, that we're going after. And that's the ambition of, of the Irish Food Board is to premiumize, you know, to 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 add value, you know, back home, and you know, to to go after premium markets and sustainability gives you that access. While consumers aren't necessarily going to always pay more, it gives you access to the best customers and the best markets around the world. If you if you do have sustainable food, yeah, I'm just thinking. Um, my own feeling is one of the things I enjoy about traveling to Ireland is the opportunity to eat unique foods. And I'm thinking of these um, PGI and PDO designations where you talk about things like Clare Island salmon or yeah. Connemara hill lamb, etc. It seems to me that there's real opportunities making Ireland a food tourism destination now that just didn't exist when I was living in Ireland in the 1980s, as John alluded to earlier, Ireland was not known as a food destination. Does Bordbia kind of work with 
tourism Ireland now? Are you guys hooking things together to kind of push that angle? Yeah, I think I think there probably is more opportunity there, though. Yeah, to to collaborate more with the tourism Ireland and things like that. Now, it wouldn't be my my area. Um, that we're mm-hmm. kind of the marketing team, but um, I guess we're probably more export oriented and focused because we're exporting their kind of bringing people in so but there's definitely you know crossovers in terms of you know that even that that what we call food brand ireland and they have brand ireland so there's you know even in look terms of look and feel of how we advertise so i would think my um, my marketing head of marketing colleague would, would would agree with you on that one but it is it is something that we you know would talk about or what, that they would talk about the irish food in ireland when they're when they're when they're trying to bring people, you know, encourage people to Ireland, food is is a really important element of that. So there'll be different events and embassies and things that events that we would that we would collaborate on. And, you know, a lot of our international offices, um, they would be state agency offices where they would all collaborate and 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 be in what they call an, an Ireland house. So Enterprise Ireland and um Board BN, all those agencies would co-locate as well. Yeah, I feel like I have to give a shout out to Imokili Regato or uh, Sneem Black Pudding or Timalee Brown Pudding. There's <laughs> all these kind of cool products, you know, when I was getting ready to talk about Ireland and food. I'm like, oh, man, I got to get on a road trip and start hitting all these <laughs> things because it looks really good. Yeah. Well, interestingly, we are um, we are hoping to get PGI status for Irish beef. Um, because of its grass uh, fed, you know, it's grass fed and, and, and the quality credentials that come that come with the come with Irish beef. So we're waiting on the EU commission approval for that. So that would be great. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, thanks for leaving us with a future oriented note, uh, Deirdre. Uh, we, we come to the point of the program where we ask you to promote something that you'd like people to know more about. I think you've been doing it about Origin Greed, but we call this segment the Seamus plug. So it's your chance to make a <laughs> shameless plug on behalf of what's ever top of mind for you. Oh, great. Well, it does. It has to be Origin Green, our national <laughs> food sustainability program here in Ireland. So yeah, just, I guess, a shout out for, for all our 55,000 members and 300 food companies who are making improvements in sustainability is, is my shout out for today. Well, Deirdre, somebody who is uh, used to striving for lofty goals <laughs> on the uh, in the athletic arena and now for Irish food through Board Bia and Origin Green and for helping keep Ireland the Emerald Isle uh, through her efforts and the efforts of uh, many, many of her colleagues. So Deirdre, great, great to talk to you. Great to get to know you. Much appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Hey, folks, we hope you enjoyed that conversation with Deirdre Ryan. It certainly was an opportunity for me to think back on my own athletic career, as undistinguished as it may have been in comparison to Deirdre. And I'm going to chat with John in a second. But first of all, once a month, we send out an email to listeners that sign up for our mail list on our website. If you haven't done that already, you can find it at irishstewpodcast.com and you'll see a little area where you can input your name and your email address. So we hope you do so and we'll keep you posted on all the cool things that are happening on Irish Stew. And with that, I will bring in Mr. John Lee. Thank you, Mr. Martin Nutty. You know, my take on this interview, Martin, is we have got to stop having such accomplished guests. They are really making me feel bad. I mean, Deirdre, (laughs) top colleges, multilingual, international business career, world-class athletics career in the Olympic spotlight. And now she's on the world stage again in a very important role, positioning the bounty of Irish agriculture as not only nutritious and delicious, but sustainably produced in her leadership role with the Origin Green Initiative of Board Bia. She was just lovely to talk to and very engaging spokesperson for Irish food. She's a woman always on the move, but we thank her for making time for Irish stew. Yeah, it's not often you get to talk to somebody that has been both so accomplished as an athlete and then moving on to a successful professional career. 
which got me thinking a little bit about that transition because sometimes that can be difficult. But one of the things that Deirdre mentioned was the resilience that being an athlete builds into your character. So a lot of times struggling through injury and still showing up on the day, despite the fact that things are maybe not optimal, but keep on trying, keep on trying. You know what they say? 50% of success is simply showing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Deirdre Ryan certainly did a lot more than show up. She's uh, a truly accomplished person. She showed up for us here on Irish Stew. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Listener.